Hello, and welcome to another episode of Walk-Ins Welcome. I'm Michael Russell. I'm Gary the Foodie, Gary Okazaki. Hello, everybody. Yeah, and we're here sitting at my dining room table, sort of catching up for the first time in probably a month Yeah, for an episode where we're going to talk about our most anticipated restaurants of 2019. Yay! I'm excited. Uh, before we get to that, I thought we'd just touch on a little bit of restaurant news that came across uh, uh, our desks this week. Um, just a few days ago, it came out that the Hearth and Hound, uh, April Bloomfield's restaurant in Los Angeles, um, is closing down. Maybe somewhat unexpectedly, maybe not. Um, I mean, I guess it didn't come totally out of the blue since Bloomfield has had all sorts of trouble with sexual assault allegations against her partner, Ken Friedman, in New York City. Were you surprised? No, I wasn't. It'd be interesting to see what happens with Tosca. I think Tosca in San Francisco is still open. And also the restaurants, her restaurants in New York City. I don't know if how much, if at all, the controversy has impacted their business in New York City, the Spotted Pig and the Breslin. Did they divide? There's uh, been, there was a divestment, yeah. There, Do you think Hearth and Hound would have closed regardless? Or no, no. Th- this is completely rolled up in the yeah. allegations against her former yeah. partner. Now, is that fair to Bluefield? I, I don't, I mean, it seems like, I don't, I mean, I, this is from a very distant perspective. It seems like Ken Friedman and Mary Batali, uh, John Besh in New Orleans, it seems like they're kind of getting off scot-free. And it seems like other people, like, April Bloomfield doesn't seem to be, I mean, it's not like, it seems like she's getting the brunt of it. Does she cause the brunt of it? Does she ignore the situation? I don't know. I wasn't there. But they don't see, they as in the men don't seem to be getting the the, the brunt of it. You could throw in Charlie Hallowell in the Bay Area. Um, that's someone who I hear a lot about just because I right. have Bay Area ties. But doesn't he hasn't really gotten the national exposure in, like Basher or Batali. Right. Yeah, well, it is unfortunate. And Bloomfield is a really talented chef. And she's, you know, I love Tosca. I love um, the Spotted Pig. It's uh, she, sir, I don't think she deserves to be punished more than Ken Friedman. Do you think she, I think she's getting punished more than Ken Friedman. Do you, I mean, and this is from a very distant perspective. Do you agree or disagree? My understanding is like the timing was they opened and then the allegations came out like within a few days on either side. And it was like crickets when they opened. And obviously that Bloomfield coming to LA was one of the biggest LA restaurant opening stories of, of the year in 2017. And it was part of this larger trend of, you know, out of town chefs coming to LA, bringing something new, bringing new perspectives. And then it just fell flat. And LA, it does have, I think like the way they dealt with Pock Pock coming from Portland, they, they, they're not always receptive to out of town. Right. So I'm not sure, you know, it's probably, it might be 50, 50 that they, maybe they just didn't speak to LA. I have no idea. And Jonathan Gold, if yeah, I remember correctly, wrote a, wrote a review, nice review. Yeah. of, and he was even, he even said in that review, it's been a while since I read that review, that he had misgivings. There's uncertainty. There was some uncertainty even in his mind whether he should even be reviewing Hearth and Hound. And, Which uh, seems extreme. I mean, different critics are de- dealing with it in different ways. Um, Pete Wells reviewed the new location of the Four Seasons, and he was really explicit about talking about the front of house manager having all these allegations against him. And I mean, I think that that's probably the way to do it. Just be really upfront 
in the end, it was a pretty negative review as well. So mm-hmm. uh, comparing that to Gold's review, which I remember being pretty positive. As do I. Like, yeah. give it a chance. Um, yeah. So what else is going on in the restaurant world? The France Michelin guy just came out a few days ago. And mo- maybe most of the listeners may not understand how seismic some of the uh, the ratings changes were in, 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 in France. Uh, Mark Haberlin, and excuse me, I, I have terrible time pronouncing anything for him. Mark Haberlin has had um, a Michelin star for 51 years at his restaurant, Auberge de Lille. And is it in Lille? Uh, actually, no, I don't think it is, but um, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And But he's had a Michelin, three Michelin stars for that restaurant for 51 years, and it lost its third Michelin star. And if you read some of the articles, and he only, he only has a couple of sentences as far as his reaction to it, it was pretty devastating. And that's how, I mean, fifty-one years. And he was he's one of the best chefs in the world. Um, also, another famous chef, Mark Barrett, lost a Michelin, a third Michelin star for one of his restaurants, but it had only had a Michelin star for one year. So, in the grand scheme of things, it's like, oh well. Uh, Pascal Barbeau has a restaurant called Lestrance, which is actually more famous than the other two chefs' restaurants, which lost a third Michelin star. Lestrance has had three Michelin stars for 11 years. Uh, Pascal Barbeau lost his third Michelin star. And I look back when I went, and just to see what rating I gave my single dinner there, and I gave it 18 out of 20, which is kind of like a high two star. So I'm not... I mean, it's seismic in the sense that I wouldn't have guessed that Pascal Barbeau and Lestrance would have lost that third star, but um, I didn't think my meal there was clear-cut third, three Michelin stars. Well, I mean, the the point you bring up is is interesting because it's not just uh, uh, losing a star. If you're if you've had a third star for fifty years, you are sort of expecting a certain level of business. Uh, you know, you can sort of plan your year. Okay, we're gonna have this many diners. We can charge this much. And all of a sudden, the rug is sort of pulled out from under you. Um, I mean, I, I assume that Michelin, you know, they're, they're, they took the star away for a reason. Probably quality had slipped. Uh, well, and they have a new head of Michelin guides that just came on board very recently. And he's, or she, I'm not sure, has made it a point to say that they would like to see more female chefs. Um, and he, he, the head of mission just wants to see changes made that they're not going to do things the same old way as in the past. Is this like a, a lot of three Michelin star restaurants getting a, no. losing a star? How often do you lose? I mean, like your average annual update, how many three stars lose a star in France, would you say? Very rarely. I mean, very rarely. So losing three in one year. <laughs> seismic. That's, that's why yeah. I use the word seismic. In New York City, New York City's lost uh, restaurants have lost three Michelin stars recently over the last few years. I mean, Jean Georges lost a third Michelin star, which probably deserved. Danielle lost a third Michelin star, which she probably deserved. And there are at least two other three Michelin star restaurants there that deserve to lose their three Michelin stars that have not lost their three Michelin stars yet. And but they are La Bernadette and you love Madison Park. <laughs> Again, I've been to Le Bernardin under repair a few times over the last couple of years. I've only been to EMP once. And I just I just didn't think either one really deserves three mission starts, even though Le Bernardin has the best pastry chef in the nation. Not even close. If it's just desserts, deserves three Michelin stars. No question, without a doubt. Thomas J. Raquel is the best pastry chef in the nation. No doubt, no question. Um, 
you also wanted to talk briefly about Bocuse. Yeah, uh, the Bocuse DR is called the Culinary Olympics, and it begins on January 29th and ends on January 30th. And um, the last Bocuse was two years ago, and the United States, for the first time ever, actually won the gold medal. Matthew Peters led the team. Two years before that, um, Philip Tessier finished second in the Bocuse, uh, which was the highest at that time ever that a U.S. team had placed. And now this year, for the first time ever, a three Michelin star chef, or chefs really can't get three Michelin stars, but be that as it may. Um, <laughs> a restaurant gets Michelin stars, not chefs. But a Matthew, chef from a three Michelin star restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew Kirkley, uh, formerly of Qua, um, is now the U.S. head of the culinary team. And I've eaten his food many times at L2O and many times when he was at Qua. And it's, I think he should win, uh, but anything can happen during that two day event. There's a meat dish, there's a fish dish. Uh, it's all about, it, taste does matter, but it's a lot of his presentation. So it's, you know, if you want to watch it, you can watch it on, the, on your computer via some app. I don't know, I've done it in the past. Um, I won't be able to this year because I'll be kind of on the road, but um, I'm rooting for the USA team. But I, it's hard to believe that they're going to win the gold medal two two times. I'm going two for two in the, during the last two Bocuse because it's really a French sort of thing. I mean, <laughs> sometimes and it's very subjective. So, you know, I, for Kirkley, I would have waited another Bocuse, mm. just one more Bocuse. Let someone else win this year. Yeah, then, oh, that's clever. And then, you know, go in two years from now and just nail it and win, take the goal, be happy. Well, Kirkley should listen to this podcast, you know, <laughs> for good advice. Um, all right, so let's get, let's jump right into our uh, uh, most anticipated restaurants of 2019. Um the first one I want to talk about, I thought we'd sort of go city by city. We're not going to hit every city in America, but, you know, some cities seem to have a, a real preponderance of new restaurants opening that are pretty cool. Um, Los Angeles is the first city, and the first restaurant I want to talk about actually already opened. It's called Nightshade, and I believe you've already been. Can you tell me about your experience? Yes, I went the fourth night of service, and I was with a group of three other people, and we ordered the whole menu, <laughs> which ended up being 18 dishes. And it was absolutely fantastic. I believe that if it had opened in 2018, it would have been my second favorite new restaurant in America, trailing only Atomix in New York City. Everything to be that good, that quickly out of the gate for Malin and Max of Nightshade is just, it's unbelievable. I mean, they were just, so, most of the dishes were really on point. From the get-go. So just to back up a little bit, Maylin uh, worked at Inc. in Los Angeles. She might be best known for winning Top Chef Season 12. And from what I read, her menu is sort of inspired by both Los Angeles and her upbringing in Detroit, where her parents ran a Chinese restaurant. So one of the better-known dishes on the menu already is her kanji, right? Yep. But you know what? I'm just not... I really, It was it was great kanji, but I'm not a kanji guy. The other three people at my table loved it. I just don't, I'm just not a kanji dude. What do you not like? I mean, kanji is very plain. Chefs, yeah. chefs, there was a, there was an article in uh, uh, Eater recently about all the chefs doing higher end kanji and they all talked about it as being like a canvas. So, i.e. the, the 
point of the congee is more about the toppings that you mix through it than the rice porridge itself. Is that what you don't appreciate about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's, yeah, I guess that's it. Where I do mean, you fall in risotto? I'm not the biggest fan of risotto either. Just, I mean, yeah, huh. yeah. It, maybe it's what about just that. Por- like porridge generally? See, that's it. I, I had an amazing, I went to, during that Los Angeles trip, I had porridge, rice porridge. That was just killer. It was amazing. It was at Porridge and Puffs, Min Pham's place. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just what I, it had like brisket in it. Sake braised brisket. That was just amazing. And I, I, I love that. I love Porridge and Puffs. We're just whispering a little bit there because my newborn uh, Rune came in with her mom. And uh, we paused for a second, but we're back now. Um, she's so cute. Yeah, she's very cute. Gary got her a onesie and she was we- happened to be wearing it when he came over. Uh, so we were talking about Malin's nightshade and um, some of the other dishes that I've read about as being sort of signatures are uh, Mapo tofu lasagna. There's, I believe, like a fried quail, like Szechuan style hot quail yes. over milk bread that sounds... Like a bit like uh, Hall and Ray's uh, hot chicken, or, or like just Nashville hot chicken generally. What else uh, stands out from you from your meal eating every dish on the menu? I've had hoist- oysters on the half shell many times before, but she elevates it or makes it, differentiates it with passion fruit emulsion. It just it just popped. Mm. And I normally don't like scallops. In fact, I'm just not a scallop sort of guy. But she really made a delicious scallop dish and. The, the twist, I don't know if we call it a twist, twist on it was the coconut vinaigrette. It just, it just, again, it makes things a little bit unique and different and tasty. I think the most likes I've ever gotten on an Instagram post in my life was a nightshade, nightshade dish. It was like over 400 likes, which is a lot for me on Instagram. And it was a blooming onion. <laughs> it was a blooming onion. <laughs> But it was delicious. I, in fact, there was, you know, there, I was like, I kept my eating it. And the guys around me say, hey, Gary, you know, we're here. Because I couldn't stop eating it. I kept on like cogging it. So it's a blooming onion. And it was delicious. You should have ordered a second one. I know. And uh, Max, the pastry chef, but he's also kind of like maze number, not kind of, is maze number two at um, Nightshade. His desserts were incredible. Like, absolutely absolutely incredible he's one of the best pastry chefs in the country he used to work at Cato before that yeah so looking around a little more generally in Los Angeles um, there's another new restaurant opening pretty soon I think called Antico and that comes from chef Chad Colby who worked at um, a restaurant called Chispaca Um, it's supposed to be focusing on Italian classics what have you heard about the restaurant and why is it why is it exciting to you, Gary? Well, I think it is kind of like, I mean, Chad did a lot of, you know, meats and, and pastas there. And I kind of think, you know, it'll be kind of like that wood-fired, you know, meats and really straightforward pastas that are executed at a high level. And I think it'll be very much like Chispaca. I don't know if it, be, it won't be exactly alike, but it'll be very straightforward. I don't think it'll be a lot of, you know, frills on it. But I'm excited because I think execution will be high there yeah and remember gary and i both agree that los angeles is the best pasta city in america right now so more pasta in la is a good thing yes i thought nobody in la ate carbs i don't know i was just i was just in la like last week and i had more pasta at the factory kitchen people who own obviously umbrera own factory kitchen i had again some very good pasta there 
Um, also in LA, continuing the theme, uh, we have a new restaurant coming from uh, Enrique Olvera and Daniela Soto Ines. I don't think there's been a name announced for this yet. Am you I are right? correct. But these are the two uh, behind Cosme in New York City, uh, which is one of the you know best new restaurants of the past couple of years. And Olvera is also known for his restaurant Puyol in Mexico City. Uh, what have you heard about this project and, and why is it on your list? Well, it, you don't hear too much about it. Oh, Chef hasn't really, Chef Olvera really hasn't talked much about it other than the fact that it's very seafood and vegetable based. And it's going to be like music is going to be a really big thing. It, didn't you read that he was going to be like DJing there? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it's in, the, it's in the Arts District, which is the hottest area within Los Angeles. That's where Nightshade is. Um, that's where... Um, Babal is, which is one of the best new restaurants in 2018. That's where Simone is. I think Salt, Salt Bay. Bestia? <laughs> uh, Bestia is, is in there because the people who own Bestia also own Babal. And Bestia is a little bit, it's in oh, the yeah, Arsenal yeah, Street, yeah, yeah. but a little bit further away. Uh-huh. Uh, that's where Olvera's going to be. Olvera's oh, going to no, be. Yeah, that's where Olvera's going to be. Yeah, that's in DTLA. So one other LA restaurant uh, that you've marked down for me is Birdie G's. Jeremy Fox, one of my favorite chefs in the country, one of the most talented chefs in the country. What he does with vegetables just makes me want to cry sometimes. <laughs> That's how good Jeremy is. Wow. He, he's came from, he came from Manresa, but he really made his name when he took over Ubuntu in um, the wine country in California. The New York Times, I think, back then said it was the best restaurant in America, and it just blew up. And, you know, I think Jeremy had a hard time dealing with the success and the pressures that go with that. And he has a book, I believe it's called On Vegetables, that came out last year that was fantastic. Well, the best vegetable-oriented cookbook I've ever read. Uh, great stories. And I think he's very been, he's been open about the struggles he's had emotionally over the, you know, the last 10 years. And things are really looking up for Jeremy and all his rest. I mean, so, so he went down to LA and had kind of a second chapter to, or third or fourth chapter yeah. to his career at a restaurant called Rustic Canyon, which I love, yeah. which seems to be just a lot more stable. Ubuntu had this, it was like a firework. It flew up and then popped and then disappeared. Yeah. yeah. And Bertie G's is going to be, it's like a big restaurant. It's 120 seats. I've been told by people, my friends who live in LA that it's in a kind of a different location. It's not really a well-trafficked location, so they're even kind of wondering how all this will work out. Mm. I was hoping for a smaller restaurant from Chef that'd be more tasting menu oriented. I wanted Ubuntu 2.0, and I, I'm not getting it. Ubuntu. But that's fine. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> but it's it, it, I, I'm I'm interested whenever Jeremy does anything. But I I do have one other restaurant that I wasn't sure about, but I've heard some rumblings that it actually may happen, and that's called Palma. No one's really written about it except the Rob Report, and it's a it's a it's supposed to be a Mexican restaurant with a collaboration between Jessica Coslow, a squirrel in Los Angeles, and Gabriela Camara of um, Cala in San Francisco, and also um, Contramar in Mexico City. So with these two chefs combined, this could be very magical. But I've heard that it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. So I've heard. Last time I heard that maybe it could be on. Okay, so just really quickly, a few restaurants in a few other cities um, that caught my eye. There's a place in Miami called Cafe La Trova, which is a um, 
sort of a Cuban beverage focused cocktail bar restaurant, um, which is going to be backed by uh, Michelle Bernstein, who won a James Beard Award in Miami. Uh, it just caught my eye because it reminded me of Palomar here in Portland, oh. which is a great Cuban cocktail bar. That seems to be a trend nationwide. Um, not just Cuban cocktail bar, but like Miami style Cuban cocktail bars. Um, of course, this one happens to be in Miami. In Houston, um, this is funny. We didn't talk a lot about BCN taste and tradition in our Houston podcast, but the guys behind that are opening a restaurant called Mad, um, which is short for Madrid. And it's going to be a more casual uh, pincho tapa style restaurant you know we went there it was i liked it more than you did you liked it more than i did it was very expensive that but that's a restaurant that was on uh eaters uh 38 best restaurants in uh texas it was on really? allison cook's uh top 10 i knew that that's one yeah so i mean it, a lot of people like it. i thought it was wildly expensive and it was wildly expensive you know, anyway I guess there's like actual Picasso paintings on the wall. I did. We just walked in and we were gone in like 60 seconds, man. It was raining like crazy that day, but it's in a beautiful old house. Uh, We're talking about BCN taste and tradition here. It's a higher end Spanish restaurant in Houston. Apparently they're opening a more casual spot. So that caught my eye in Seattle. There's a restaurant that is actually open like nightshade. It's been open for a couple months called archipelago. And this is a restaurant that is sort of modern leaning Filipino food using solely Northwest ingredients. Um, and it's from a couple of people, Aaron Verzosa and Amber Manugid. It's a 10 to 12 course tasting menu, uh, that I guess chef Verzosa worked. Um, he has a background at harvest vine and modernist cuisine. So you can sort of see what direction that's leaning in. Can I add one more to Seattle that hasn't opened yet? Yeah. And that's Shoto Dakajima's Taku. He owns a Donna, which I've been to before. If you have a chance to go to Adana, three courses for like, I don't I can't remember the exact price, maybe $30, $40. Great bargain. Good food. But he's opening a, a place called Taku, which is Kushikatsu. It's a Kushikatsu place, which is deep fried skewers. I like skewers. I like anything that's deep fried. So it sounds good. <laughs> Capitol Hill. Uh, there is a restaurant in Minneapolis that you wanted to talk about. I believe it's called Demi. Yeah, it's from Gavin Kaysen, who owns Spoon and Stable, and he used to work for Daniel Ballou in New York City. I loved Spoon and Stable. Demi is, but Spoon and Stable is a large restaurant. I don't know how exactly how many seats, but it's a large restaurant. Demi is going to be, I believe, 20 seats, tasting menu only, and I'm truly excited. I'm like, I'm, I really want to go to Demi this year, but it's kind of like, I, re, I hit up Minneapolis. I went to a lot of restaurants there. And I don't know if I should go. It's hard for me to just go back to Minneapolis just for Demi and then fly back. If we're really close, no doubt I would do it. But I, but I really, really want to go to Demi. It sounds so exciting. Um, back on the West Coast, there's a restaurant called Mentone that's close to your heart. Uh, that's going to be in Santa Cruz, and it comes from one of your favorite chefs. Uh, yeah, David Kinch of Three Michelin Star Manresa and a super casual restaurant called The Bywater. And David has been traveling around uh, Europe, specifically the Ligurian area, um, and doing research. It's, uh, Menton's going to be very, very casual. And it's going to be pizza and pasta. But I bet it's going to be the best pizza and the best pasta imaginable. He spent some time with... Um, uh, a chef, um, Colagreco, who just got his third star from Mirazur last week. 
And so this is, you know, he did he spent some time with the Cold Greco to do some more research as far as, you know, Mentone's menu. But um, I'm, I'm truly excited about uh, Mentone. It's about 27 miles away from Manresa. So I'm thinking, ah, do I, can I go there for like dinner, then, then have Uber back to Manresa for, you know, the second dinner of the night? Because I really do want to go to Mentone. I, I'm assuming, give or take, that'll open Just hitchhike, here. man. Just, what? like, embrace that 60s Santa Cruz vibe and hitchhike over the mountains. <laughs> okay. Uh, that should open in spring, summer. They're not officially Spring, summer, sure. yeah. late spring. Well, briefly, you wanted to go outside the United States and talk about a restaurant in Copenhagen opening uh, again early next year. Uh, called the Alchemist or just Alchemist. What have you heard about that? Restaurant? Oh my God! I don't. I don't know. I mean, it sounds so odd, weird, and pie in the sky. I don't know if this will actually happen. I don't know if this is a joke, but it's a fifty thousand fifty thousand square foot restaurant. The top is from Rasmus Monk. Fifty fifty courses, fifty course dinner, five hours. I mean, my God, can this actually be? I mean, is this a joke? Is this like, are we getting, are we being punked? <laughs> I, I'm just like, I'm actually, I, I would love to go. It's kind of outside of Copenhagen. So, I, it's not, but not too far out from what I understand. Uh, but I, I really want to go. I mean, it's like, I kind of wonder when if I go there, it's like these dudes will step out of the, you know, out, you know, just say, April Fools. I mean, like I don't, I don't know. But it sounds <laughs> you so just flew all the way here. Yeah. And it's a McDonald's. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds really weird and intriguing. So I always like weird and intriguing. Mm, I wish I'm, we had more weird and intriguing. Vespertine is our closest restaurant to weird, weird and intriguing in the United States. I thought maybe we would come back closer to home and talk about restaurants opening soon in Portland. The restaurants that seem to be the most exciting right now are the same restaurants that were what we were looking forward to in 2017. And those are Bullard, which just opened and we've talked about previously may, uh, and yonder, which is a split restaurant from chef Maya Lovelace, which is finally looks close to opening and Magna, which apparently has found a space on in Southeast Portland. May was Maya Lovelace's Appalachian pop-up and now turned restaurant. It's going to have a casual fried chicken themed part up front and then a tasting menu in the back. Magna is another sort of more modern leaning Filipino restaurant from Chef Carlo La Magna uh, here in Portland who worked at Clyde Common. And uh, those are two restaurants that were first announced in 2017, and we were anticipating them all through 2018. They finally look, especially May and Yonder, finally look close to hitting the finish line. Um, what do you know about those two restaurants? And, you know, uh, are you still excited for them after almost uh, two know, years? I don't know. Yeah, of course. I mean, I love Maya's fried chicken. I'm kind of curious as to how it will be different than the May pop-up. So there's the casual three-course one, or the shorter one, the longer one, plus brunch. Those were the three distinct dinners and brunches that she did like right. will it be very much different will her food now be very much different than what she served then just an extension of maybe the mondays will inform yonder and the wednesdays okay. will inform the back of house the tasting menu and it's fine if it's the same exact dishes or variations thereof magna i mean like carlo really didn't do that much filipino at clay common he did some he did lumpia at, at, at Clyde. He yeah. did some other Filipino tinged 
and influence dishes at at CC. Uh, and he did pop-ups. He, he's done Magna pop-ups. But pop-ups are always hard, and it's hard to know. You know, once you get your restaurant, it's completely different. And I mean, I'm excited about Magna because it's, there's more unknowns and more variables. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited about both. I'm really excited about Eam. Yeah, Eam. Eam is a, a collaboration between Earl Ninsom of Longbon and Hot Yai, uh, Matt Vichadomini of Matt's Barbecue, and Eric Nelson, who is runs a cocktail pop-up here in town called Shipwreck. And so they're going to do sort of a fun, lively cocktail bar with Thai-spiced barbecue. And it sounds like a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm always a big fan of Vince Wynn's cooking. I just, he cooks like I like to eat. It's very elevated. Very, it's a little bit different. Either you kind of like it or you don't really like it. It's Because it's very polarizing in, in that sense. Um, I love it. So when Hot Yai 2.0 opens, most likely Vince's Berlou will open about the same time because they're right next to each other in a space off of Morrison in southeast Portland, like Morrison and 6th, give or take. So I'm excited about Berlou. So I, I don't know if we're supposed to talk about it, but May Lin has also been rumored to be opening a kanji restaurant in that same complex. I don't know if it's still happening or not. But I, we'll I won't ask you because <laughs> you might have personal knowledge, but uh, that has been reported. Yes, um, that has been reported. Obviously, Nightshade has taken precedence for her, and rightly so, and it sounds like it's been a smash hit. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what Bill Addison writes about it Yeah, for the LA Times. He's done a few reviews. Yeah, I thought we, maybe we could talk about that next week. Okay. The new West Coast Critics. Okay. Um, so let's talk about your travels a little bit. It's been a while. Yeah. I had a baby. Congratulations. Thank she's you. She's beautiful. Like how, how are things with the baby? Uh, she's really great. We, uh, I don't know if second babies are just easier or what, but she sleeps 23 hours a day. You can hold her in one arm. Uh, her poop literally doesn't stink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not yet at least. So she's kind of the perfect baby. And, uh, it, I think you just, um, you just get better at it, you know? How do you think your life will change? Because it's one thing having a single baby, and when you add the second baby, do you, do you think I mean, it'll change significantly or not that much, just one other little one? Well, I don't know. I was talking to Gabriel Rucker, who's the chef at Le Pigeon, and he told me we need to have three kids. And his what he said was, if you have one kid, they... We'll just constantly look to the parents for, you know, we need help. We need help. If you have two kids, they'll fight with each other and then go to the parents. But if you have three kids, all of a sudden he said it creates this tornado effect where one goes after the other, the other one goes after the second one, and then the second one goes after the third one. And it's just this like Tasmanian <laughs> devil around the, the house. Parents the parents are left can alone. just chill. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, we're not having a third kid, but, uh, it, that sounds, that's pretty tempting actually now that he puts it that way. Okay, so you don't think your life will change that much? I think, I think it's changed already. I think it's changed already. I mean, the, in the early going, it's been like a lot of me with the older girl, with my almost two-year-old daughter, like a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, getting her away from mom and the infant so that she's not you know, grabbing her or throwing stuff on her, trying to get out of the house, which is not easy in Portland in the winter when it's raining all the time. But um, you know, we're, fine. we're setting up play dates and... Anyway, this is not what you come to the podcast. No, I think for, this so. is. I, no, this is. This is. A, this could be the best part of the podcast for some people. Yeah, well, I will say that the uh, the one food related thing that came up with our infant is um, 
we were we had a lot of trouble breastfeeding with our first baby uh-huh. and we we really wanted to you know not only did we have trouble breastfeeding our first baby had trouble gaining weight so we were pretty adamant that we were going to at least introduce some formula early on as soon as day 1 potentially because I wanted to make sure my wife was happy and that our baby was healthy. So while we were in the hospital, we actually had a really not great run-in with a lactation specialist Uh who really got in our case for using formula early on. So if anyone out there is listening and, you know, is maybe considering not being 100% breastfeeding or even using formula right out of the gate, I say, you know, you have to do what you have to do to make sure your baby's healthy and make sure you're sane and don't let make people make you feel bad about it because that's not right. Okay. That's great. Gary, great advice. where have you been, Gary? I went to Hong Kong and Macau plus Los Angeles. I spent a night in Los Angeles going and two nights coming back. So it was a long, kind of a long trip for me. I went to Hong Kong last summer, got sick for the last three days and like sick in bed. So I wanted to come back when it was the weather would, was better. So it was really dry. It wasn't humid at all. I loved Hong Kong and Macau. I had some uh, it's just amazing Cantonese um, food. Did you it, mostly go to higher end places? Yeah, and there there are four Chinese restaurants in the world with three Michelin stars. I went to three out of the four on this mm-hmm. trip. The fourth one was Tang Court on the Kowloon side of Hong Kong, which I just wasn't able to get to. I went to Jade Dragon, The Eight, and Lunking Heen. And I, I, of the three, I really, really loved Jade Dragon. You know, I, I had the meal. As I was going through the meal, I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is truly just ridiculously amazing. I was just blown away. Then when I looked over what I ate, I'm thinking, oh, you know, it was very straight, you know, very straightforward stuff. I'm thinking for some reason, I don't know, I guess when you, you get transported sometimes, for whatever reason, there's a million variables that go to eating when you eat at a restaurant. And for some reason, it just it just blew me away. But, you know, I look at the food pictures and think, oh, God, that was really okay. But it, it was like synergy. You know, two plus two equals five. So I love the Jade Dragon. Um, my favorite restaurant was called VE Restaurant. VEA Restaurant from Vicky Chung, who's actually a dude. I don't get the whole Vicky thing, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but it's a fusion between Chinese and French, and it was absolutely wonderful. Love VEA restaurant, very creative. Um, Robochon Odom was my second favorite restaurant, and that was three Michelin stars, opulent. There was a, there was a huge chandelier right in the middle of the restaurant, 132,000 uh, crystals from Swar- Swarovski. It was, you know, it's very um, classic French food. Not overly heavy, influenced by Robochon's Japanese, um, you know, time, his time in Japan. Robochon depart, uh, passed away last year, maybe the greatest chef ever. And I love my experience at Robochon Dome. And my fourth favorite experience was Takumi by Daisuke Mori. And that was Japanese, Japanese and French kind of combined. One Michelin star, um, absolutely fantastic. I have this thing right now where... I love going to restaurants owned by Japanese chefs cooking French food. Paris is replete with these types of restaurants. I'm going to Paris again a couple of more times this year, and I'm focusing on those types what of restaurants. What do restaurant. you think? What is what? What do the Japanese bring? What perspective do they bring that really, you're, in your experience really, to French food? Really, like simplicity, 
kind of letting the ingredients shine, not overly complicating dishes. Um, yeah, and sometimes you you know like some Japanese owned restaurants that do French food, you really don't even realize you wouldn't know that the chef owner is Japanese unless you knew beforehand. And I you know and I and I find that even interesting in its own respect. Uh, but yeah, and one other thing, um, <laughs> I went to this really strange place in Los Angeles, you know, during my trip back. Right. Pacific Dining Car. Have you ever heard of it? No, never heard of it. It's been uh, open since 1921. Open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> okay. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go. I'm assuming it'd be like a hole in the wall. Place. Why did you go? How did you find this place? Why was it on your radar? Oh, it was on some list that I used to do research. Okay. You know, cause, yeah. Okay. So I, I go there thinking, oh, it's going to be a hole in the wall. It's like $5 omelet thing or whatever. I walk in and I went there for breakfast and I open the menu and there are omelets, but the cheapest omelet was like $32. What? I had a main lobster scramble <laughs> for 40, basically $40. Oh my gosh. And it was a huge plate and it was delicious. But I looked at the breakfast menu. Everything was like expensive, like beyond expensive. And like, I, I didn't, and if you, I went on the website thinking, did I miss something? Then I went on the website, they don't have prices down. They have the menus, but no prices. I can only imagine what if dinner is, but it was busy at, on a weekday at like 10 o'clock in the morning. There, it wasn't full, but there were probably, you know, 10, 15 people there eating. Huh. And, it's just kind of that's bizarre it's bizarre you also went to porridge and puffs yeah and you went to nightshade yeah did you hit anywhere else in la worth mentioning factory kitchen which is yeah. owned by the same people from office in brera uh had pasta there love the pasta uh in fact that's the only thing i had uh i think that's what's the, next for you what what's next uh what's your next trip singapore singapore well we'll talk about that next time before we go you wanted to briefly chat about the super bowl yeah Okay, okay, so yeah. uh, we uh, offline, not on the pod, did make a bet about the college football national championship. Gary picked Clemson to win. I picked Alabama, and I lost. So I have paid up. Uh, maybe we'll make another bet this time. We'll see how it goes. But uh, well, So the Rams are going to play the, um, the Patriots. Patriots. This is the sort of a rematch of Tom Brady's first shining moment 18 years ago when he was a sixth-round draft pick replacing Northwest native Drew Bledsoe, and they beat the Rams. Um, so what do you think is going to happen? Well, for many years, Super Bowls pretty much sucked. You go know, those years when the Buffalo Bills would play the, some team and get their, their asses handed to them. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and, but, but now, the last 10 years, we've had some pretty good great. Super Bowls. Yeah. And we've had some bad Super Bowls, like Seahawks versus the Broncos or the, um, the, the Broncos versus the Panthers. The two Patriots comebacks were amazing. Well, I mean, when they come back from 28 points down to beat the Atlanta – the, and then also the last second play to beat the Seahawks. Those were well, that's amazing, the amazing well, moments. Un, the Tom Brady Super Bowls, they've all been, I believe, like one-score games. Huh. So this should be a very, I hope, a very close and fascinating game. The conference the title games, what was interesting was Todd Gurley was awful. Like, he looked hurt, but everyone's saying he wasn't hurt. 
But C.J. Anderson got most of the carries. Gurley had maybe like, he had one touchdown, but he had like four carries for like ten yards. It was like a beautiful, that. yeah, it was a beautiful run, but it was only seven yards or six uh, and a half yards. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. I mean, is he healthy? Is he not healthy? That's I a big point deal. Out, he really stalled out at the end of the season. It wasn't, you know, people. I think people are coming to the playoffs and being really surprised by him trading touches with C.J. Anderson and maybe a lot of, the, especially the the championship game where he was on the sidelines, seemed to take people by surprise. But this was a guy who was having like an MVP caliber season until week 12 and then kind of took a nosedive. Like, to, like a no, not like a nosedive, like this nosedive. Like, you know. Well, right. he definitely slowed down. It seemed like, are they saving him? But maybe they weren't saving him. Maybe there was actually something wrong. Well, since he didn't play basically the last game, he's got three weeks to heal up. If there is an industry, in, yeah. in, uh, injury. We'll see. Um, I, I, Brady just knows how to win. I mean, he's, during his reign as the greatest of all time, the receivers that he's thrown to have been, other than Randy Moss and Gronkowski, have been pretty pedestrian. Yeah. He makes people like Chris Hogan or you know Edelman look like all pros. Right, or Amendola. So Amendola was stalled out on the Rams. I mean, right. he was a, a often injured, uh, not a superstar. He goes to the Patriots and you know does some good things. Exactly, and the I think. You would think the Patriots will find a way to win. I think the, the, the I think Los Angeles is a better team. Um, Akib Talib is back. He was hurt for a little while. Marcus Peters got got actually destroyed, absolutely destroyed by Michael Thomas during the regular season. I think Thomas went four catches for thirty six yards in the yeah, conference well. championship game. So they have t- this. They have two players on defense who are absolute. Well, more than two, maybe who are total superstars in um, Aaron Donald and Ndamukong Sue. Sue, who happens to be a Portland native, I've seen him walking around. He's a human giant. I think Sue is kind of past his prime. Sue He's still was very incredible good. in the championship game, though. Well, he had a great game, but yeah. I think that was probably his best game of the season. And plus, Aaron Donald gets double teamed. Yeah, and um, you know they played next to each other as DTs, uh, and, and you know. I think we'll see if um, uh, Brockers, uh, Sue Fowler, and Donald can pressure Brady. Brady has a quick release. And, and will the passers bother him? Uh, will he have to blitz? I mean, I. it seems like it's going to be a really good game. I would probably lean to the Rams because on paper, they seem like the more talented team. But, you know, Belichick just finds a way to just, you know, win yeah one bonus that i'm really looking forward to for the super bowl is that it's on cbs which means that tony romo's calling the game and he was absolutely fantastic in the afc championship game he was predicting what tom brady was going to do before almost every play in the fourth quarter and you know that's almost beyond what you ask for in a color commentator to to actually be able to sort of see what's going on in the field and predict the play that that's that's incredible to me because there could be one or two or three reads and you know but but Roma played fairly recently and he seems like a really smart funny guy so I'm I'm very excited we're not getting you know wooden Troy Aikman uh, for the Super Bowl. <laughs> and now the Dallas quarterback okay I would personally take the Rams so if you're also taking the Rams we don't have a bet okay we'll save it for next time okay gotcha. hey uh thanks everybody for listening we'll be back uh when Gary's back from Singapore okay bye-bye